I'm actually probably one of the most loyal followers of the theory of the time machine. Uh, having said that, the great irony and the great miracle of this is that Masayoshi Son and his investment style effectively broke the very model he pioneered. Because if you give an idea that shouldn't work a few billion dollars, it actually starts to work. And vice versa. Until the, until the money runs out, right? Hey, hey, it's Sarah, and you're tuning in to Billion Dollar Moves, where we deconstruct the billion dollar moves of world-class funders and founders every week. This week, we are up for a treat as we take a turn to Southeast Asia, and you're tuning in to a two-part series because this episode was just so good, I had to split it into two, with venture capitalist Dimitri Levitt, Russian-born Israeli citizen who is now deemed an expert of investing in Southeast Asia, having spent more than a decade building his firm, Sento Ventures. They typically invest in Series A and lead the round, and notable investments include 2C2P, Pomelo, iPrice, and Kaidi, formerly led by Tiwa York, who we also had on the show. Check out our episode in November 2022, Building Through Startup Chaos. In today's part one, we chat about Dimitri's move to Southeast Asia. What has surprised him as an investor? Masayoshi Sun's time machine theory and how narratives can drive substance, what on earth that even means, the bull run and crossover funds, and a teaser message to founders raising in this environment. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. All right, Dimitri, I'm so excited about this conversation. I think, you know, uh, I am a fan of your sarcasm and your sense of humor, and this is what we always welcome. Uh, but let's get started here. Dimitri, how are you? Thanks for having me. And sarcasm me, never. You never. I love it. So let's get started in true Billion Dollar Moves fashion, right? Uh, we want to understand who this person is that we're tuning into. Dimitri Levitt, that has been a character in Southeast Asia since 2005, I believe. But what brought you there? Uh, Tell us a little bit of who you are and uh, what brings you to the region. So born and brought up in St. Petersburg, uh, northwest of Russia, the San Francisco of Russian Federation, if you like. Um, university back in St. Petersburg, uh, quite a bit of work in Europe in my first roles in FMCG industry. Then a pivot to systems integration, I kid you not. Fell in love with software industry, made a bit of money paid for my MBA in Singapore campus of INSEAD, which was also my surreptitious way of escaping Russian Federation. It was time back in 2004, 2005. And since then, I made Singapore my home, or broadly speaking, Southeast Asia has become my home. Became an Israeli citizen in 2017, uh, tried mm. to expand my horizons to a slightly more global standing, but still Southeast Asia and all of its digital affairs consume probably 90% of my time. 
Yeah, and and fascinating to see what you've built uh, since the last time we we've chatted. Sento Ventures is really your platform that you've built, investing into uh, Series A founders. But let's you know really get a sense of where we are today. You know, you started looking at the region at a time where it feels uh, relatively nascent, but of course a lot has changed since. And of course, uh, you just published a report and talked about the high watermark that we're in. Right? Tell us a little bit bit more about where. Where is Southeast Asia today compared to when you first started looking into uh, the digital side and the venture side of things? Well, probably it's worth mentioning that I started looking at it from several different angles at several different times. I'm not entirely sure what my starting point was. Uh, the first perspective I got was through the eyes of Yahoo Southeast Asia office, which, believe it or not, yellow and purple was here. And that uh, was quite a big thing back in uh, 2005, 2008. In some countries in the region, Yahoo was literally synonymous with Internet at the time. So that was the perspective from the uh, data and structure seat of a large U.S. corporate, carefully and slowly expanding into the markets that didn't truly understand. There was a second vantage point which I reached when uh, a very kindly a Vietnam-based but American venture firm, IDG Ventures Vietnam, took me under their wing and allowed me to see what the venture process looks like from inside. That was 2007, 2008. I did spend some time working for a large family office slash corporate in Indonesia that is best not mentioned, not the one with the greatest reputation. And uh, that gave me a vantage from, oh, a bit of a vantage point as to how local conglomerates think, not to generalize them all. And so uh, then the firm was started, and yes, I did start it, but since then, it is much less me and much more of a collective product of work of multiple partners and teams who have been at it for 11 years. And so um, if you measure from all the year, all the way back to Yahoo days, well, back then I think ad budgets in the region were $20 million total per year. Right now it's, I haven't checked the statistics, but easily five, six bill. Uh, back then, investment into the region, I don't even know what it was. When we first started publishing this report, which you mentioned, which we started publishing it in 2013, but we ran the first version in 2010, I think the total investment into the region was a couple of hundred mil at best, and that's counting some really odd things that just happen to be incorporated in Singapore but don't actually have much to do with Southeast Asia. And last year of memory serves, we crossed nine bill. So the region has gone quite the way, but all of this is best read in Google Temasek report. They've got all the right statistics on that, uh, highly recommended reading. Let's put it this way. It wasn't a complete mistake to come here and join this ecosystem. Mm. And what has surprised you? I mean, you know, other than sort of we're looking at the capital that has been flushed into the system, uh, what else has surprised you in terms of the growth of uh, whether that's platforms or the verticals that you're looking at? Um, well, the first surprise was actually was how predictable things were. Circa 2006 through probably 2014, it was almost as if you could write a playbook saying um, all emerging markets or growth markets, if you like, they, um, they rhyme. If it has happened this way in Brazil, it would happen this way in Indonesia. If this trend was picked up in Mexico, sooner or later it arrives to Thailand. The parallels and the rhymes and the repetition of business models was quite obvious, you know. Groupon takes off in Germany like a clockwork. A year later in China, another year later in Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand. 
in 2015, in the beginning of this big bull run, um, all these parallels and um, history repeating itself machine started breaking down a little bit. That was my first big surprise, that the flow of capital uh, causes narratives to take over from substance, and then narratives start warping substance, and then time starts flowing a bit faster. And I know I sound like I'm having a bit of a heart attack, but I'll explain all of these concepts if you like. And suddenly the region started getting full of surprises. Some parts of it started following India, whether they should or shouldn't. Some started following China, whether they should or shouldn't. Valuations got really out of whack even back in 2019. And then the triple whammy of COVID capital markets and uh, capital flight from China have happened. So I think in the last two years, uh, my state can be described as permanently surprised. Nothing is as was predicted. Hold that thought. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. Hmm. I love that. And and let's dive a little bit deeper and, and explain and extrapolate. When you say the narratives uh, did not follow the substance or the substance did not follow the narratives, t- tell us more about what you, you mean by that. So the construct I've been thinking about rather a lot is uh, I'm just trying to understand why would the flow of capital not reflect either underlying generation of revenue and profit or indeed underlying macroeconomic parameters. And again, I can um, refer our audiences to our report, which points out that amount of investment that we have observed in the last three, four years doesn't seem to correlate with GDP per capita or amount of revenue generated. Um, Something else seems to be driving it. And it's quite clear if you look at the largest companies and the largest deals that the narratives drive it. I'll give you an example of a narrative. Um, In high density growth market cities, Local services should be aggregated into unified platforms called super apps, and super apps win. Or there is an example of a narrative that says um, every market that has reached a certain level of retail penetration should shift to e-commerce up to 10% of retail. Or there is a narrative of, yes, ride-hailing is a utility unless you are really mean to your drivers, but sooner or later self-driving cars will arrive and turn these utilities into immensely profitable companies. In the very well-built and the very square and narrow city-like, for example, I've never been, but I'm told by Google Maps, Atlanta or Dallas, where every turn is a right turn and 90 degrees, self-driving cars actually do seem to function. And in the incredible density of well-moneyed consumers of Shanghai and Beijing, super apps do seem to function. But then these um, ideas, they start traveling And the reason they start traveling is, and especially traveling to growth markets, is because most of the investment decisions pertaining to Southeast Asia, as well as Africa, as well as Latin America, as well as the Middle East, um, are made not inside the region. We did some number crunching on that. 70, 80% of capital that has uh, gone into Southeast Asian tech, decision makers are based out of Tokyo, Seoul, Beijing, New York, Berlin. 
and therefore ideas that dominate the minds that deploy this capital are very much colored by what has worked on the ground substantially in the markets where decision makers come from. And so in Southeast Asia, you have this very interesting confluence of narratives and ideas of how this should work when seen from afar and how it actually does work when seen from the bottom, bottom up. And then these two flows start to interact because if you give an idea that shouldn't work a few billion dollars, it actually starts to work. And vice versa. Until the, until the money runs out, right? Potentially. And if the entrepreneur in charge is good, they take the money they raised for a narrative that doesn't work and turn it into substance that does. That's the beauty of the whole thing. It's neither black nor white. So what you're alluding to essentially is a version of Masayoshi-san um, time machine theory, right? Where he takes, basically it's the, the cut, copy, paste, uh, the rocket internet models that we're seeing that has um, exploded Southeast Asia. But what you're saying is it's driven by a lot of ideas that may not necessarily stick, but sometimes and stick if, we, if you have enough capital. I'm actually probably one of the most loyal followers of the theory of the time machine. Uh, having said that, the great irony and the great miracle of this is that Masayoshi-san and his investment style effectively broke the very model he pioneered. So up until his very splashy appearance in Southeast Asia with the Tokopedia 100 million investment end of 2014, if memory serves, time machine principle actually did work. The same classifieds, the same search engines, the same ad networks, the same payment gateways, the same logistics enablers as were seen in the more advanced growth markets, whether it's LATAM, whether it's India, have been popping up slowly but steadily following GDP per capita and the consumer spend all across Southeast Asia. But when you introduce extraordinary amounts of capital into the system, you warp the logic of the ecosystem development and sometimes you accelerate it, sometimes you decelerate it, sometimes you try to aggregate it and build the monopoly, but instead shatter the ecosystem into 10,000 pieces because 10,000 competitors show up saying, you know what? Telenor also has billions, and so does Naspers, and so does a dozen, now a hundred uh, private uh, sorry, private equity funds, and then a couple of governments get into the play. So um, it is interesting that the time machines um, theory effectively cancelled itself hmm. by being followed by a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And that's fascinating. I mean, when you look at um, some of these sort of deals that have come in, right, with this ideology of it should work here, this is how uh, it plays out in, in these sort of economies, where do you think it's gone wrong? I'm not entirely sure it had. But let, let's put it this way. So, for example, one would expect e-commerce to be driven by its most profitable verticals, which historically have been understood to be your electronics, cosmetics, and probably to a degree various um, home furnishings and uh, sometimes even shoeware. And uh, these categories are not random if you go to video recordings of rocket internet guys only somewhere from 2013, 2014, you will see which categories they call out. These are the categories we must conquer, as they were saying in their true uh, uh, rocket internet style. But um, if you give the 
players in charge of e-commerce verticals a few extra billion dollars, uh, they need to extract the margin from, from, let's say, electronics vertical or cosmetics vertical is decreased. And they need to get every consumer so that nobody else comes to, to the market is increased. So the e-commerce starts being driven by lower, lower value, higher frequency, higher demand goods. And so you end up not with several concentrated, high margin, small coverage e-commerce platforms, but two or three vast ones that pride themselves on being able to deliver a dollar value item to the furthest reaches of the unreachable archipelago. So that is not a thing that has ever evolved before. Uh, and it's not mm. something that one could have predicted from um, doing analysis on other growth markets. It's a new development that has been given to us by the 10 years of capital markets largest. Yeah, and, and I, I've heard you talk about this as well. A lot of the capital that has been flushed in also came over from crossover funds, right? And private equity uh, from America and beyond that uh, has really uh, flushed the system. But now, of course, you know, times have changed slightly with, uh, uh, you know, debates on whether a recession is here already or not, you know, whether the rates will be going down, I, as I mentioned, you know, just came back from Davos and a lot of the conversation was around uh, the economy and whether, you know, it will play out in the way that's expected. W what are your thoughts here with how this will affect, you know, the previous trend of a lot of the capital coming from uh, outside the region? Probably, and I was speaking of the whole bull run of last 10 years, while the crossover funds are a very um, exciting feature of last probably two years. So I would break down the entire wave of capital that came our way here into three overlapping smaller waves. Folks that had unlimited amounts of money due to very low interest rates, so they're done for now. They might come back in slightly different incarnations, but not to be worried about so far. And then there is the secular realization among large private equity firms and governments that digital transformation of value chains in Southeast Asia is an unstoppable thing, and it's best to capitalize and buy into that. So those players are not going anywhere. They might hold the deployment for half a year here, for half a year there, but they'll continue. And then there is the third factor, which is the, I'll call it, and this is not in any way to diminish what these players are doing, but I'll call this this thus anyway, occasional waves of enthusiasm about Southeast Asia that various adjacent ecosystems experience on occasion. So interest of corporate China towards Southeast Asia or Japan Inc. or investors from Germany or investors from India, they've, or investors from Australia for that matter, they've never been consistent and permanent. They come and go as as we discussed, narratives change. The narrative of Vietnam is next China and the manufacturing hub of the world. It comes and goes every five to 10 years. The narrative of Indonesia being next India, and India is obviously, as we all know, next China. It comes and it goes. The Philippines being the small version or the smaller version of Indonesia, the narrative comes and goes. Sometimes people remember that Malaysia is great at manufacturing and low-cost BPO, sometimes people forget. Thailand is a magical country. It sometimes appears and is high on everybody's agenda, Tokyo Inc. especially, and sometimes it's just this Thailand-shaped hole in the map of Southeast Asia, as Tiva, who you interviewed a couple of months ago, or a couple of quarters, has alluded to. Um, so, yeah, 
that third element is the least predictable one. You can never know when somebody from Australia shows up and says, guess what? We have a small but flexible and highly permissive stock exchange. Let's list everything in Southeast Asia on ASX. Happens, goes away. How much do you think that portion, the last portion of perhaps uh, what, what you call tourists, would you call them that? Invested oh, tourists? Too, too derogatory. Some of these folks commit their lives. They move to Southeast Asia for 20 years. They marry into the region. They go deeply local. So now some are tourists, some are not. But that third mm -hmm. bit, what is the percentage? Really hard to say. In my mind, the above three trends are one third, one third, one third. And, and we've talked about this before in the past, uh, you know, with corporate VCs and sovereign wealth funds, right? All through 2022, uh, there was a little bit of a uh, market, I, I guess, correction, right? And we're continu continuing to see that. But are they still sticking around, you think? Corporate VCs all government. Corporate VCs and sovereign wealth funds. So I guess uh, two separate entities there. So sovereigns are a little bit above my pay grade. I will need to ask to call a friend, my partner who deals with the uh, more institutional sources of capital. But my general feel is they have not stopped. They persist. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're smarter about their bets and they're not going anywhere. And in fact, quite a few new players are emerging, as you can see from pilgrimage of a whole lot of VC personalities to various locations in the Middle East. As for yeah. the corporate VCs, it all, corporates are unknowable. Some have strategies that last for 20 years, some change them every year. Some have personnel changes that therefore change strategies. So just went to Jakarta and spoke to a few VCs that are saying things 180 degrees opposing to what they were saying a year ago. Then you get on the call with people in Oslo and they're saying exactly the same thing they were saying 10 years ago. So I guess some folks have shorter time horizons, some have longer, but usually the bigger the corporate, think a large Japanese banking corporation. They are like a tanker that goes one direction for 50 years. Very heavy object and a lot of inertia and a lot of thought put behind those strategies. So they very rarely change direction. They might just change intensity a little bit. Mm. Hold that thought. My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Shan Puri, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My First Million features amazing guests like Alex Hormozzi, Sophia Omoroso, Hassan Minaj, sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. An episode I really liked, a recent one on how Sam's mother-in-law built a million-dollar Etsy business out of nothing and i believe it involves hellos so listen to my first million wherever you get your podcasts so that in some way uh has helped with the flushing of capital into venture funds right so venture funds have a record dry powder and i think that's reflective in the u.s as well and yet what is happening right now with you know deployment are we seeing deployment slow down uh, to the founders themselves? Uh, well, from what I can see, it goes country by country. The more globally minded and internationally connected the VCs operating in each country are, the sooner they are to, the quicker they are to react to the cool down in the US and subsequently in parallel China. So in Southeast Asia, I think Singapore came to a full stop first, followed very quickly by Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines. 
party in Indonesia carried on till, by my reckoning, October 2022. The party in Vietnam carries on as we speak. Um, but then again, some industries get more, some industries get less. I would say that generally, I still am to crunch up. We are to crunch our numbers for Q3 and Q4 to see exactly what slowed down and to which degree. But that feels as 30 to 40% drop off. Uh, mm. And a ton of dry powder sitting on the sidelines and wondering which way to go next. And what is your prediction on where this will go? I try not to. Every time I try to predict something. <laughs> the current slowdown I predicted in 2015, that was a lesson. So, <laughs> so probably I should um, defer to my more wise colleagues in the industry. Asia Partners does a very nice prediction set all the way to 2029. I strongly recommend Momentum Works. They actually have the discipline of doing annual uh, predictions and then revisions of those predictions. Um, mm -hmm. Rather, they do self-criticism. They review what they got right and wrong. But the only thing I can see from our data so far is that the current slowdown interfered with a very interesting regional debate. And the regional debate was, and I call it a debate, it's more of a slow argument between deals and deployment of um, funds. What is the next destination for growth narratives? Now that Indonesia has, I wouldn't say been played out, it's only just been the first game in many, many game series. But now that Indonesia has been more or less mapped out, what is the next frontier? And there is a very clear separation in the ecosystem between folks whose answer is Vietnam and folks whose answer is the Philippines. Uh, to Tivas, Chagrin, Thailand remains a flyover state that he put it. I didn't. And Malaysia seems to be a pretty much um, forgotten by most players as well, which is very peculiar. And that conversation has been now interrupted by the global cold that capital markets have caught. But once the flows return, that conversation will return as well. And my prediction is one of the two will be it. But which one? I dare not say. Mm. And yet we've seen, uh, you know, the deals from sort of Series A. I, I think I, I was looking at the reports that you started 2013. It's the value. It's something like 10x what it is today, right? Um, you know, compared to before, you know, it's, it's 10 times more than what you tracked in 2013. How are you seeing this with regard to rounds specifically in terms of what can founders expect if they're raising? Or, you know, wh what is your message to the founders? Well, my message to the founders is please take our money, will be useful. Uh, but in if somebody tries to ask me to predict which series will be getting more or less capital, I'll, I'll usually disappear and try not to answer this question. So uh, the last thing on my bingo card for the early 2022 was a surge in series B valuations. The logic goes, hmm. the capital markets are weakening. And therefore, there is less enthusiasm about making expensive bets. And therefore, Series C and A will be strong, but B, C, and D will weaken. But I didn't think through the second degree um, effect, which is folks from the later stage say to themselves, you know what, that $100 million mega deal I was planning to lead, let's split it into five $20 million checks and go slightly earlier stage. It's safer. So the uh, confluence of people who escaped into Series B was such that all through the first half of 2022, Series B valuations spiked like 50, 60% on the previous year. And that's 2021. 
So I'm, I'm yeah, giving up on predictions and just tracking data. But if the founder's email <laughs> portfolio um, ask for assistance with fundraising as they do, uh, the answer is evergreen private equity funds with VC allocations. This guys are stable and steady. Uh, and uh, or a reputable vertical specialist. They have nowhere to run. Once one has set the store by their reputation and let's say e-commerce enablers, let's say logistics software, capital markets up, capital markets down, uh, it doesn't really matter. The thesis shall continue, the deployment shall continue. So these two categories of players are um, who we bring our portfolio companies to at the moment. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. Part two of this fascinating convo will be dropping soon, so you know what to do. Subscribe, follow us wherever you get your podcasts, and hit that auto-download button so you'll be the first to know. And yes, if you want to keep hearing more from us, pledge your support for the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and telling a friend or 10. I'm Sarah Chin Spellings, and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.